Mike, and thank you for joining me on this episode of Amateur All Tours. This week, I'm joined by Jay Skipworth again for our journey through the decades. Um, this week, we are in the 1980s. Um, and Jay, how you been doing, man? It's good to hear from you again. I'm doing good, Mike. Thanks for having me on the show again, and I look forward to continuing this. We've now gotten to the real hard part of the assignment, because finding movies I haven't seen from the 80s, 90s, 2000s and 2010s was going to be a real stretch, but uh, particularly the next two decades because the majority of my movie watching life started, of course, in the 1980s and in through the 90s. So um, we had to we had to dig a little deep to also find one that is considered you know a classic of the decade or a top film of the decade. And I think tonight's film is an example of something that has been revisited through the years because it was not a hit when it came out and has only found its audience in you know, subsequent years and things, but was definitely something I had not seen before. Which is pretty surprising. So the film we're going to be talking about this week is Terry Gilliam's Brazil, released in 1985. And this is actually a really interesting pick because a few years ago, this was, I, I used to have a segment of like, what am I missing? And this was a film that had escaped me as well. Um, and I remember like hearing a lot about, like I was getting into Terry Gilliam, you know, I had seen 12 Monkeys at an early age and I had seen a, a, a handful, like obviously the Monty Python, um, his, his stuff. And I just, Brazil escaped me. And so I eventually uh, watched the movie, did an episode on this show um, where I feel like I, I, I re-listened to it a little while ago and I, I mostly went into like the background of like the production hell that is, well, I want to say Brazil, but most of Terry Gilliam's films are just like production nightmares, um, whether it's censorship, losing, well, really having when he has, has to drum up funds or a combination of all of the above and creative differences. Um, but yeah, Brazil, this is, I'm surprised you didn't see this. So what's your relationship with Gilliam and his work? And because he's definitely an interesting cat, I will say that. He's definitely an interesting filmmaker. I think anybody that's listened to Filmstrip or even heard me on this show through, through the years should know that big, broad comedies are not my thing. So Monty Python is not my thing at, in, in any way at all. I think I've only seen holy grail maybe once and it was years years after it had been a thing i i knew some of the sketch comedy you know you couldn't escape that growing up as a kid but and he's the american in the troupe which i often thought was funny because i thought they were all british um and it's not that i don't appreciate that work i think it takes a very specific kind of artistry to do that stuff it just wasn't for me like it never landed for me when i think terry gilliam you you mentioned 12 monkeys i've never seen that one either um i've seen parts of fearing loathing in las vegas but i abhor hunter s thompson so i don't want to see him glorified in any way possible and uh, i refuse to see the fisher king in any way uh, that it exists the the movie of his i know is time bandits now i love that movie mm -hmm. because uh, you give me some sean connery and some dark humor i'm, I'm there i think that may be his best film because it all works together. Um, Brazil for me, man, I think it was when I was you know renting movies and watching stuff growing up, the opening poster is just Jonathan Price's face with his head, you know, capped off and like all this stuff exploding out of his brain. And I was like, what is this? And when I read the description of the back of it, I was like, 
what? And I, I still think that about this movie. Like, I'm like, what is this about? And so I, I just missed this one. I think I tried watching it once several years ago and I, I maybe got 15, 20 minutes into it. And I was like, no, um, because to me, and I know Gilliam claims that he, he had no you know, relation to this at all. He wasn't the only one that wrote on this. The other two people who did, this feels like sort of the comedy version of 1984. And that's a work I, I happen to particularly like. I like the John Hurt movie um, too, because I think it's about as good an adaptation of that thing you could, you could make. And I feel like this always was doing that same type of motif, but trying to make it more funny and more lost in the bureaucracy instead of the jackbooted thuggishness of the big brother of, of 1984. And so, yeah, I hadn't, I had no relation to this at all. Like I just, I just, it never would have been anything. I would have sought out. And um, yeah. So uh, yeah, I have, I have no like craving for Gilliam and it, it breaks a lot of my friends hearts because they're huge Monty Python fans and all that stuff. But man, that stuff just never landed for me. It just didn't. And so I, I don't, flock to him or, or or what he's all about i think it's funny you mentioned the the behind the scenes issues i think you could just call terry gilliam creative differences terry gilliam because that's just kind of his whole shtick in life is to just be a difficult person to work with and everyone who's ever worked with him says two things about him they love him and he's very hard to work with or they hate him and he's very hard to work with <laughs> yeah it's uh it's interesting because it's because Terry Gilliam is such a visual heavy director and I like the shorts that I've made and, and I really gravitate towards the visual aspect of filmmaking. And uh, I mean, obviously like the, the stories you can tell, but I love like the abstract um, storytelling you can do through visuals and Gilliam. And, and we, and I said this to you when you texted me, cause I have my Twitter pulled up and you said, man, I hope you can make sense of this one because wow, it's out there. And like we got our <laughs> back and forth and I said, you know, I can respect the hell out of Gilliam's drive, ambition, and vision, but Jesus Christ, he is way out there sometimes. And I feel like that's, like, I haven't seen all of his films, um, but the ones I have his uh, IMDb pulled up, the ones that I have seen, um, Brothers Grimm, Fear and Loathing, Las Vegas, Twelve Monkeys, Fisher King, Adventures of Baron Munchausen, Brazil, Meaning of Life, Monty Python, Time Bandits, Holy Grail. You know, all of these have such a distinct... Um, He's an auteur. Like you can watch a film and be like, "Yep, this is Gilliam's work," in in my opinion. And um, so that is what initially drew me to to well, specifically Brazil, but even you know, Fear and Loathing, Brothers Grimm, all that. They have this very distinct visual style. Mm -hmm. That being said, sometimes it really works, and sometimes it really doesn't. And and, I'm, I'm and gonna, that's Gilliam. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to argue that the visual style of this film, which should be committed, it is a visual feast, has a lot more to do with the cinematographer than it has to do with Terry Gilliam. Roger Pratt is the guy that I'm, I'm calling out here. And he worked with Gilliam a couple times. He did Meaning of Life and this. But he's the guy that shot 1989 Batman with Tim Burton. And, uh, you know, uh, all his other work, and he's done a lot of it. He shot uh, 12 Monkeys, too. Um, he did the first two Harry Potter movies and stuff. But that 1989 Batman is a visual feast. And the, uh, Roger Pratt, as a British cinematographer, is one of the best to ever pick up the camera. And I, I think he, he is to credit for a lot of what this film might be remembered for because brother it ain't the story i'm gonna tell you right now <laughs> um it's not to say there's not a story here there kind of is but i feel about this movie my the way i feel about a lot of snl movies that get made you know they take the sketch 
that's such a hit on Saturday Night Live and they make it into a whole feature. And the problem with those is that the sketch maybe can stretch till about 45 minutes, but then you have to build a story around it, right? To get it to 90 minutes, you know, theatrical release. And it always just, the souffle doesn't, doesn't stay together. You know, the meringue does not meringue on the pie. And, and the very rarely, you know, most of the time those just don't work. And I feel like this is better consumed as a series of sketches if you could just break it up and watch it in sort of chunks you might actually enjoy it like as a your little 20 and 30 minute shorts and stuff but as a complete cohesive film brazil lacks a lot and and i think because it doesn't have a continual through line other than isn't the bureaucracy or do we want to live in a society where the bureaucracy doesn't even know who's in charge wouldn't that be absurd well, yeah, but what's the punchline? And and he's like, that's it. You know, so it's like the aristocrats. So I think the through line, and I don't know if I read this or saw or watched an interview with Gilliam or a combination of both, but it kind of goes into uh, uh, Brazil is, from what I understand, part of the unofficial trilogy um, that is with the trilogy being Time Bandits, Brazil and Adventures of Baron Munchausen, and mm. I don't know if there's a name for it, but I've been calling it just colloquially uh, the uh, Imagination Trilogy. And and this I'd have read with Gilliam in that he like the through line between these three movies is the strong presence of imagination, and specifically the imagination's role in like I guess a man's life or someone's life. So Time Bandits being the imagination's role with a child, Brazil being that of like a middle-aged man, and then Baron Munchausen imagination uh, in regards to like an older man. Um, I think that helps a little bit um, because I think I me, mean, I'm trying to look at his uh, his films again, um, and that. Kind of makes sense because we had Time Bandits, Meaning of Life, some shorts, and then Brazil, and then Adventures of Baron Munchausen. So, and I think when you look at it in that sense, like the imagination is such a huge component, especially in Brazil, especially when we get to our ending, which mm -hmm. we'll touch on that in a second. I think imagination really plays more of a heavy theme in Brazil, and whether that's negative or like a negative or a positive, um, or uh, it's like ambiguous like we'll see we'll talk about that but yeah this uh but focusing specifically on brazil it definitely tries to talk about a lot but i definitely think like the main point is trying to it i think the theme is like escaping bureaucracy and escaping like the mundane and the ordinary through imagination but it has a very long-winded way of getting that theme across i don't know what, what are your thoughts on the idea and the theme of imagination here oh i think you're, you're dead on i mean i think if there's anything that you want to take away from this as literal at all is that this is the life of a middle-aged man who's in middle management and bored you know i mean like you, you can do your job you're smart enough to have gotten to where you are and you can do your work but you don't have to put the full force of your brain power behind it sometimes so you just kind of let yourself drift off into what if things were much more exciting and different, you know, and but while missing kind of what is exciting and different about your own life. Right. And I th mm -hmm. that's the, the thing about this one that 
and I think is the three line of this movie is that our character Sam played brilliantly by Jonathan Price. I will say, I know a lot of people don't like Jonathan Price. I happen to love him. I didn't get to see him do the engineer on Miss Saigon. I saw his understudy the day I went and saw that, that uh, musical on Broadway, but he's brilliant in it. I've seen the videos of it and I've, I've watched him for years. I knew of him before this movie, actually a little movie called something wicked this way comes uh, Ray Bradbury mm-hmm. joined. If you, you've ever, you know, check that one out uh, from the early 80s but I've liked him for years I like him in anything even in like a lame James Bond movie he's fun you know like I think he's good and when you take a guy like that who can play put upon you know a lot and you give him this fantasy of rescuing this beautiful woman you know in his dreams and then he sees the real person you know, in life and it becomes his obsession. Like, yeah, I mean, I kind of get the idea of this person with a mundane life chases something that's exotic and then it lands him in all kinds of trouble. And whether you want to take that as literally all of the stuff happens to him and he winds up lobotomized at the end, or if he's just an office drone who makes a mistake and then they lobotomize him anyway. And this is sort of his mind running away with itself. I think either way reads as part of it, but to get there, Mike, yeah, I had to watch this like twice just to get there. And, and I had to read a lot and think a lot about it for this to even work. So the, while the three line exists, it's not something that comes across the first time through. And I don't know that's a bad thing. You know, you and I've talked about tenant before, and that's a movie that definitely value is valuable on rewatching. Cause you'll get more and more of it as you go with it. If you can go with it. Uh, but uh, there's something to be said, like if it's you're rewatching it because, okay, that was so cool. I want to go back and revisit it and catch all the things I missed the first time. Or if it's like, I didn't get that. I have to take the test again, you know, so I can understand the class and see what I'm doing. It's like re-listening to the lecture again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, yeah, Brazil is, this is definitely a movie that you have to watch multiple times. I think, I mean, I, just because there's so much going on and I mean, and I'm going with it for the most part. Like I love these, like, I mean, we have like the Terry Gilliam visuals, like I was saying earlier, but how much is that? It's contributed to the cinematographer both. Um, but really the use of like the fisheye lens and the wide lenses, like mm-hmm. I absolutely love that. Like you can get like the full, especially in, in the case of Brazil, when we have these like elaborate sets and, you know, b- the bustling of all the extras in the background, like, with the ducks and everything, I think the wide end, the wide lenses and the fisheye lenses work really here. And like the strange humor that it's kind of a bleed over from Monty Python, like you know the whole opening segment with like uh, the the uh, the um, what is it, the guy killing the fly, where he's just like running all over his uh, his office trying to kill this fly, and then like just this like insignificant detail of this man killing a fly, like this office bureaucrat killing a fly is what sets up the entire chain of events of just one little bureaucratic mistake, which I think that's the joke in and of itself is like just something so insignificant is what kickstarts, you know, the, this entire journey of, of, um, of our main character of Jonathan Price as Sam Lowry. Um, And I'm going with it, but then like the first act has me, hooked with like the craziness of the world the zaniness the strangeness the middle act i'm like okay where are we going with this like what's what's going on with like this jill layton character everyone's like connected but not um we have i mean this it's a star-studded cast here i mean we have jonathan price robert de niro as harry tuttle ian holm as like the boss michael palin fellow uh python comes in jim broadbent makes a 
the random cameo in the background. Oh, it's not so much a cameo, but he just plays a character in the background. Bob Hoskins. Like, I'm just looking through this, and there's just, like, all these, like, star-studded casts. I guess this was in the 80s where everyone was still kind of up and coming, arguably. I mean, not so much like Robert De Niro. But, yeah, it's... But that middle act... um, like okay where are we going with this we're getting a lot of very strange imagery and very striking imagery at that like uh, like i mentioned uh jim broadbent's dr Jaffe, or i forget the doctor who's the plastic surgeon mm-hmm. and i love that visual of him just stretching the uh the mother's face pulling it back wrapping her face in saran wrap obviously it's a very on the nose commentary of you know plastic surgeons and and it's it's commentary on that. But I'm I'm digging the visuals for me are satisfying me. But then the story's a little bit lacking. It's kind of going in circles. We're like okay, where are we going with this? But I but to me I feel like the third act really picks it up and and that's when like that imagination, um, the imagination theme really kicks in because the the daydreams start becoming more and like more frequent as well as a lot more like action packed and I think there's just a lot to unpack especially with the dream sequences um with like the samurai warrior and like these uh I don't know like these baby puppets like like marionette type figures like it's it's we're getting some crazy things here and and that's I don't know to me that's very engaging and even like I'm looking at the IMDb here and just seeing like some of the stills of this film like I think that's why I I'm I'm gravitating towards it because I think my brain just wants to try and dissect and find the meaning there, and maybe there is no meaning there. And but see, that's what I, we're I here think to I think you've hit, you've hit on it is is that what we're set up in is that the first act, and I agree with you, the first act really is the hook of this. It's setting up the world for us that everything's all these interconnected ducks, and it's all kind of run by this big piece of government, but. If one little butterfly fleck thing can, you know, go the wrong direction, look at the chaos it causes. So they're supposed to arrest this known quote terrorist Tuttle, who's played by uh, Bob uh, Bob De Niro, and such a weird role for him, um, and not not what I, all of what I expected him to do. And I could tell he didn't know what he was supposed to be doing either. But they go and they they arrest just this nobody who's kind of like Sam. And what what I found funny about it, and this is part of where the sketch comedy is, you know, they drill through the ceiling and all this stuff. And as they're bagging the guy's head and resting, his wife has to sign paperwork. You know, like, yes, this is your mm-hmm. husband. This is where you can receive him. This is what he's charged with. You know, it's like, yes, there's it's like all this red tape that you have to go through to do anything. And like I you know, I recently, like for for a period of about eight hours, lost my wallet. Finally found it uh, recently. It was it was in a trash can. I don't know how it ever wound <laughs> up there, but nothing was missing from it. But, you know, I did what everybody else did when I thought it was lost. I was like, okay, let me cancel everything that was in it. So what, what all was in it? I didn't have a lot in it, thank goodness. But unwinding that was like going through all this red tape. I was like, oh, God. I mean, it took me like a week to you know undo <laughs> all of that. And it was it was a mess. And, I, and I'm thinking what Gilliam is is – doing here and that's what the thing you, you find out about sam and and his friend um uh, mr kirchman his boss ian holm that, that is playing with him and then even uh michael palin who plays lint that's um he's supposed to be the a nice guy but is also like the torturer or something he takes the promotion because it's got better hours or something like that um is that these people are part of a machine and they don't really love it but it's better than the alternative but even they don't know who's in charge and i think what gilliam is all about is like do we want to trust our lives to this 
group of people who don't know who's in charge and nobody knows who's in charge and all this stuff. And so he's kind of got this, yes, free anarchy, but he doesn't have an answer for that. That's the problem with that, you know, method of thinking is like, oh, there's, you don't know who's in charge. Well then, okay, what's your alternative? I don't have one. Here's some, you know, let's switch the sewage duct to the air duct. Ha, you know, I think that's, that's what's frustrating about this is that I see what we're setting up and that it just doesn't ever completely pay off. Um, there are some fun things where, you know, we bring in these people and you could almost argue that outside of prize, almost everybody here is a glorified cameo in some way or another. Like Bob Hoskins pops in. It's almost like he's, he's Mario before there is Mario, you know, mm-hmm. it's, and, and there's that Ian Holmes there. You got Catherine Hellman who I knew from like, who's the boss and all that kind of stuff. Right. But her face getting stretched all over the place, but she's almost playing like the, uh, mother from the Manchurian candidate. If you remember that, the Angela Lansbury uh, role in particular. And you have her. And then, of course, you got Kim Grease, who's bless her, man. She she was in a couple of cool 80s movies and then just forgotten, you know, like this and Manhunter. And I think she was in a couple of other things. But man, she just never got the due because most of her directors treated her just like a model. And that she didn't need to talk or do anything interesting. So she's just there to stand and look pretty while Jonathan Price fumbles about trying to figure out how he can, quote, rescue her. He doesn't even know what kind of trouble she's in. But uh, that's the thing for me. And and where I have a hard time with this, and I'm hoping you can explain to me, is we have all these intercuts of Jonathan Price as this kind of archangel with silver wings and long flowing hair. And then we cut back to him in like his little gray dapper suit and stuff like that. And I never know, like, what is that supposed to come from? Is it from the painting that's above his bed or like, where do you think all that comes from? I think, I think Sam just wants to be a protector and he's, and maybe he's too cowardly because, uh, I mean, as, as the film goes on, uh, I mean, that's kind of, that would be the running joke is that, you know, he becomes like this action hero. And I think that's when the jokes land is when, like, there's the joke when he helps, uh, Kim or Jill escape and he jumps in her truck. He's like, we did it. Let's go. And then she kicks him out of the truck. And he's like, <laughs> this is like the classic action hero, like, you know, yippee Kaye motherfucker moment for, mm-hmm. for our character of Sam. And then, you know, he just gets bamboozled out of the, the truck and he's just like left in the street. Um, and, and I love the, and I love that, like kind of those reversals. That's why I think the humor is working for me because, but you are, there is what you were saying. It's, there's a lot of like sketch comedy, mm-hmm. which like in the moment it works, but then when you start trying to piece it cohesively together, but I think Sam wants to be the hero of his own story. And I think that kind of goes into the ending of the film. Like, um, and I guess when we get there, we can also talk about the love conquers all ending, which is them just cutting out the last 30 seconds of the film and then just rolling the credits. But I think Sam wants to be this hero uh, where he's soaring above the city and he's fighting, you know, the essentially the establishment. Um, but, and it's, it's, I don't know if it's like really well established, like why he wants, I think he's just a low, like a, he's a man having a midlife crisis that is, dissatisfied you know this idea of flying and being like the ultimate freedom is flying and um i think he i think initially it this flying through the city flying through the sky is just this idea of like ultimate freedom but then once he starts having these visions of of um of jill and kind of saving the damsel you know he wants to be the hero of his own story um and he'll go to any lengths to do that in with his imagination so but yeah, it is uh 
there's a lot going on here to unpack. And when we start sprinkling in these daydreaming events, um, I, I think it's very revealing of like the character of Sam because he actually does have a lot of power that he doesn't want to admit. You know, mm-hmm. I love those moments when he's with um, the with his boss, the Mister Kurtzman, yeah. and Mister Kurtzman is like, "Oh, where's where's Lowry? Where's Lowry? He's late." He Lowry, Sam Lowry just comes on in. He puts his feet on his boss's desk. He is he's working the terminal for him. He's he's like, "Oh, you know what? No, this is what you have to do." Like he's. He's the boss of his boss without his boss even realizing it. Or maybe his boss doesn't even care because the work is getting done in one way or another. Right. So Sam actually has a lot of power in in his own little isolated world. And he, you know, he's getting promotions left and right, but he doesn't want to accept them because whether he doesn't he just wants to, you know, kind of be a fly on the wall, just go under the radar, or he, you know, wants to be distant from his mother because his mother's the one that's been pushing for these promotions. Uh-huh. Um, it's, I, I think a lot of it is he has a lot of power, but he wants to do it on his own terms. If that, if that at all makes sense. I, I'm following you and you, you use that, that phrase fly on the wall. And I think there is something to be set up for that is that what Sam wants is to just be in the place, but not to have any real responsibility. Right. But I think even the fact that there is a fly that we spend two minutes chasing mm-hmm. and killing that sets all of this, you know, buffoonery in motion is because that that is emblematic of who Sam is. You can't just be a fly on the wall. You are a fly in the ointment. If you're a fly on the wall, you are part of the problem. You know, you are in the mix, and it, the longer you hang around, the bigger problem it's going to become for you, and or that you're going to create for other people. So, I think that's what Gilliam is trying to say: is that y- you can say that, like, oh, I can't really change, you know, the system and all that. I just want to benefit from it, so I'll be a part of it. So that way, I can make small changes from the inside. And what Gilliam is proposing is that no, you can't. You'll just make more problems because you don't really belong there, and you don't want to be there. And moreover, none of us belong in this kind of system. And yada yada anarchy you know i mean that's that's the problem is that the the theory kind of runs out of steam in the third act like a stephen king book but the setup (laughs) is there and i i think that's very deliberate that we see the whole fly thing and that then you you talk about him wanting to be the fly on the wall but also be the hero in his own story but he doesn't want to take any real action for it because when you see him flying around and soaring he's just sort of watching all of it right he just wants to be above it all but he's never really swooping in with you know machine guns blazing and taking down everybody yeah, and there's also this like mirror motif that is throughout the film. I mean, I think if you were to type in Brazil, I think one of the like one of the standstills you would have is when um Sam Lowry is like pressed against uh one of the mirrored walls. Um I I don't I don't remember if it's in I think it's uh in one of the restaurants he's having dinner with his mother or something like that. But there's always this like there's always a mirror somewhere present where he's either looking at himself or he's looking away from his own mirror. And I think the mirror motif becomes more and more prevalent once Sam starts questioning his own involvement in the system and the system itself where he and that's when I think the dreams start to kick into a little bit more of an active involvement of him, like fighting the system Um, and uh so I think as the film goes on, Sam is starting to question his own involvement and realizes, like you've been saying, like he can't just be a fly on the wall. Like he has to actively fight the system, and um, and 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 that is intriguing in its own way. But I think what we're what we keep saying as well is like it 
it's instead of you know how long is this movie this movie is like two and a half well hours? it depends yeah, on which two, two cut hours of it you minutes. get but yeah it's it's a little over two hours either way that you look at it they try to cut it down to like 90 minutes but i can't imagine that being that way yeah i i feel like the movie ex- in in the in the second act explores it it, it elongates some of these sequences a, like a little too long where we're kind of like left questioning like oh maybe we can trim this up a little bit more but i i do like these ideas that sam as the film progresses like actively starts questioning his own involvement and stops you know and becomes well i guess in his own way a more active participant in fighting the system but uh but there's but there's still like some hypocrisy that he has like there, there's only so far he's willing to get involved uh because at the end of the day he gets involved because of this woman that he's seeing in his dreams it's not from yeah. a sense of i need to fight the system it's not a sense of this is wrong but i don't know how to fight the system now he's empowered to fight it it's all based on these like selfish needs of like hey there's this woman that i'm seeing in my dream let's go pursue this and try and help her because I, I, for some reason I don't know why. Well that's what I think that's what Gilliam is trying to say too is that you may have all of these altruistic motives and dreams and stuff but once you get into it and you reach a certain point in age you really are only motivated by your own selfish desires like this truthfully like is all the good you want to do it's usually because and I'll get the girl or I'll get rich or I'll be famous or whatever it is and I think that's what Gilliam is saying is that even in your your greatest moments, uh, humanity is still just selfish, you know, and it's going to kind of come down to being selfish. I mean, heck, most of the Monty Python gag is about people making selfish, stupid decisions and the humor therein. Like, you really could boil it all down to that. Most comedy is built around that, and that's fine because you can poke fun at it. But what Gilliam is trying to do is, is say... Even in your greatest moments, again, you, you're going to just go back to what you really want. And the truth is, you don't really want that because you don't know what you would do with it if you had it. And it you don't deserve it anyway. You know, and that's the, that's the funny part is that the as, as put to the side as poor um, uh, the Jill character is in here she has her own motives you know she's trying to, to figure out what she's doing and th- uh, the problem is, is they've cut so much of her that, that you just never have any idea what in the world it is she's supposed to do or supposed to be mm-hmm. and and i and i i think this is a good segue into like kind of the history of this film we don't have to go too too deep into it because mm-hmm. i i've covered it a little bit in the past but we've been alluding to like the production hell that was this movie and i th- and specifically with brazil i mean i'm sure funding was whatever that that i mean finding funding for a gilliam picture is always going to be an issue um but specifically here the studio really was trying to like cut this i think in his i think in gilliam's contract he had final cut he had um he had final say of the final cut but then the studio again was kind of taking it how you were taking it, it was just like what the hell is going on like we need to cut this this is going to be a financial bomb like we need to which you know it kind of was but as most <laughs> terry gilliam films are initially is that you know we need to make this more accessible so then they were like the producers and the studios were meddling with with um with his final cut they changed the ending which we'll get to and then um Gilliam, you know, very publicly, I think he even took out a full page article in like the New York Times being like, oh, he, hey, he, he went beyond release that. my film. He went beyond that. He, he screened it 
in like overseas or something like that and got all these critics to like praise it and it won an award and he said how can you you not release an award winning <laughs> film like he blackmailed him into it which is another reason like the studio is like why did we give this guy 15 million dollars this is a mistake you know and and the thing is you can give an art tour and an artiste funding and resources to do things but you've got to have somebody in there and i'm not saying you know i'm not all for studios meddling all the time because they do ruin a lot of movies that way in my opinion but studios survive and succeed because they do know what they're doing in some cases and you need somebody on his team on his side somebody there to go look i hear you but we got to be able to make this where people can get this you know or whatever it might be like they they've got to you got to have somebody there to, to rein in the artiste, you know, to, to make it work. Otherwise, you just get a mishmash of stuff you can't do anything with. And ultimately, films, studio films are pieces of art, but they're also pieces of property. And they are meant to be consumed and to make money. And that's what they do. And Gilliam got that, you know, right off and got all of that because Time Bandits had been such a major hit. You know, so it's not like he couldn't do it. It's almost like he was refusing to. Yeah, I think what Gilliam needed was what Sally Menke was to Tarantino. He needed an editor that was very real with him, understood his vision, and also understood, like, you know, like Tarant. obviously we know Tarantino, he can just go on and on and on, rub his own ego with his writing. And to a point, like, you know, it's acceptable. Like, the man is a talented writer, but there's a point where it goes too far, and Sally, you know, for Sally Menke for his, for all of his films up until, I guess it was Inglorious Bastards was her last film before she passed, you know, she was able to rein Tarantino in. And then after she passed, you know, you can make a debate what, how his films are like uh, Django Unchained and onwards, but I think Gilliam needed that editor that knew his vision, knew how to talk to him and knew how to rein him in and, um, and, fine fine tune the work and i don't think gilliam maybe it was his ego maybe he thought he didn't need someone like that maybe he thought like his vision was perfect as all all tours they think that their vision is perfect but you know i think gilliam may have been missing that collaborator that could say that had the that had the relationship with him to say mm-hmm. maybe we don't need this scene in here maybe we need to need we need a more clear through way maybe we need to re-edit the scene so it's a little bit you know less abstract and a little bit more engaging or or some something like that yeah no i i think you're right on i mean it, and that's the thing is that gilliam is his own collaborator you know, in such ways. I mean, I think it's amazing that Roger Pratt's able to take what he wants and turn it into the visual feast that we get. Because one thing, like, if you just watch this movie, like, I tried to imagine, what if this movie had no dialogue and just had, you know, orchestral through it? You know, what would that be like? Right? I'm like, Michael Kamen and Roger Pratt basically making a, a movie with it. I could, I could go for it. Like, they're able to translate all the sketch work that Gilliam wants to do into something and you could watch it and more or less get the same story that you get through the dialogue it's not like the dialogue helps Mm -hmm. yeah exactly yeah I and that would be really interesting uh if if we just had someone that could just rein him in yeah um but but we don't and that and that's the thing is that (laughs) we can wish for that all we want but we don't and that and this what what we get then is this movie that 
you know, got chopped to pieces in some ways and got different endings and all that. And I'll be honest with you, I, I don't know that it matters one way or the other which ending you see. The, the studio wanting the more happy ending I get, and I get, but I actually think Gilliam's right. Like, no, this guy needs to be sitting in a chair, you know, loked out of his mind on drugs and lobotomized because that's ex- that's the only way you can explain what is happening in the third act of this movie is that, mm-hmm. the, yeah, this is this the fever dreams of somebody who's gone. You know, um, there's a reading of total recall uh, and I, I mean both versions of that movie but even the schwarzenegger one um, but there's a reading of the philip k dick short story where everything that happens in that movie it, it, the, the big action pieces are all just the dreams of the guy in the chair you know and there's a reading of the schwarzenegger movie where everything that happens in the third act is just him loked out of his mind on, on a the, you know a brain embolism or whatever they call it at the time and I kind of like that. It's a little darker and kind of dour. I go for that kind of thing. Like, and that may just me be me personally. I don't know that wide audience does, but I, I'll say right now, like the ending of this is actually, I'm like, yes, finally, at least this got to somewhere that yes, you know, if you try to buck the system, you as a one person cannot take it all down, particularly sniveling Jonathan price. And so this is what will happen to you at the end of it. And your friend will get shot in the head and you will be like, well, what am I doing? And then all, all of a sudden you're just sort of dreaming the, the forever dream. I, I kind of go for that. I, I don't think uh, Gilliam was wrong to want to end it that way. I get why the studio was like, no, he should wind up with the girl. Cause there's probably like a room full of people deciding that at that point. And in 1985, let's be honest, cinema going audiences were not going for that. We had come out of the dour late sixties through the mid seventies where everything was just dark and anti-heroes and everybody got shot and died and forget it, Jake, it's Chinatown and all that. <laughs> stuff you know and we had now we'd had star wars you know and jaws and mm-hmm. stuff like that so no we got to have the happy ending and so studios were just on the happy ending drug forever yeah and and i guess this is a good transition into our ending so the the quick notes version of our ending um we have this big triumphant and you know sam uh sam lowry he and jill uh they go off and they you know Sam uses his connections to uh, terminate or delete or whatever it is, like make sure that she's not being pursued by the government. They have their uh, their lovers embrace in his mom's bedroom, and um, and then you know the government agents come in, and he's put in the chair to be tortured. Which I I love the visual. It's almost like the Cerebro from like X Men. Yes, um, yes. But, but I love. But that's like one of my favorite shots of the film when he wakes up. We got a wide, wide angle, like fish-eyed lens right on his face, zooms back, see the expansiveness of this torture room. And then Jack Lint comes in with this, like, with this bait, like this, like, oriental, like, baby face, which is just, like, such a bizarre visual. And I love, like, the use of the fish-eye lens because it's just, it just warps the, like, the face. And then, um, you know, Jack is kind of chastising Sam. He's about to start torturing him, and he and he feels, you know, well, he says he feels awful. He's more like pissed that he ha- that that Sam kind of forced him into the situation. And then we have this huge epic, you know, the the rebels led by Robert De Niro's uh, Tuttle character comes in, releases him. They have this big shootout of the Ministry. Very interesting visual of Tuttle being like sucked in by papers and disappearing and then uh sam and jill being reunited kind of going into the sunset now this is where 
the the ending that you were saying, like the happy ending, the love conquers all ending. Mm-hmm. This is where that like studio ending would be, and I've seen it. Um, I think they did release a cut. Uh, maybe it was a test screening or or something with this quote unquote love conquers all, and it essentially just ends like two minutes early, where um, Sam and Jill are together. They're in this riding in the big tractor trailer, um, which is almost which is funny too. It's a funny visual in that it's like reversed. Like you would think that in his imagination, Sam would be driving the truck with Jill on his arm, but it's reversed. Like he's cuddling Jill while she's you know arm around him one arm on the steering wheel just taking off into the sunset and there like you know they drive in the sunset credits roll which is interesting because i think there's still some a little bit of like illusion like did he really make it out because it's um the ending credits are rolling with the clouds in the background but you still see like the torture room so you're like yeah there's a little ambiguity but it's not very clear so the true ending is we cut and we have Jack and um, and uh, Sam's boss, uh, Dr. Kurtzman, and or Mr. Kurtzman, and they're in his face, and they say, you know, he's gone. Like, he's too insane. We're not even going to torture him because we won't even get anything from him. And uh, Or Mr. Helpman, his, his other boss. And they leave, and we just end on Sam's face just, like, absentmindedly uh, staring into the void, like a slight smile singing the uh, Brazil theme and then 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 the credits roll and so essentially this whole thing was just an elaborate dream inside of Jack's or I'm not Jack um in, inside of Sam's imagination and and I think that's the question that I think that we sh- can discuss a little bit more in that uh, Terry Gilliam, I, I think I read somewhere that he said, like, this is the happy ending and that Sam, you know, he is living <laughs> that imagination and that is dream. But when you think about it, you're like, but it's not real. He's using his imagination to escape the horrors of his of like reality. So that's where I gotta get kind of confused with the imagination angle and the theme of imagination where it's like are we ending on such a, like, a dour note of, like, life sucks, you can't escape it, like, you just might as well just retreat into your own imagination? Because, I, like I said, I'm pretty sure Gilliam said that this is, like, the happy ending. And I'm like, is it a happy ending? Because he's running away, he's not accepting his reality. He's just going into his own imagination and I, I think, so deep that he's lost. No, I think that's exactly what, what Gilliam is saying, is that there shouldn't be this system where no one's in charge, we don't know who's in charge or whatever, but then again, there's really nothing the little people can do about it, so find joy in what you can, kids, and uh, laugh at the <laughs> at, at the goofy thing in front of you, and just, just retreating to your own imagination, you know, retreating to your own escape, or maybe even larger, what he's trying to say is maybe you can't change the world and and it's hubris to think that you can so just try to find your own little piece of happiness in it and uh, you know life sucks and then you die you know i mean or something like that like i don't know like the, the thing about this movie is that there's such interesting stuff and like it's a dark comedic take on um the whole 1984 aesthetic like i can go for with it like that you know in some ways it just never quite congeals it just doesn't all come together because again it's it's like trying to have your cake and eat it too you know and i just don't know that that you can and i I don't know i i that's how i feel about this man is i just don't think it 
completely comes together because he's got cool ideas, but then there's like, there's no way to pay them all together or pay them, string them all together. You know what I mean? Like we said, it would have been good to yeah. have one other person in there. He trusted going, let's shape this story and do another thing rather than bringing in two other people to try to make sense of what he had. Yeah. And I think if you're looking at this film alone, that ending kind of works, but like not really. But if you look in the context of like Time Bandits, Brazil, and Baron Munchausen, because I take the, if I take those films into account, which I don't know if that's cheating or not, but um, the imagination here is definitely that of like a middle-aged man going through like some sort of midlife crisis. It's very yeah. bleak. It's very like depressing, and it's very like no hope. But you know, when you look at Time Bandits and the use of imagination, like, Time Bandits, like, sorry, I'm about to spoil the the end of Time Bandits, a movie that's almost, like, what, 40 years old? Yeah. (laughs) You know, at the end of the film, you know, we go on this, like, magical adventure, uh, like, through the cosmos, um, and and at the very end, you know, our our main character as a child wakes up, and then his parents, like, explode, and, and they die, like, in a house fire, and then the movie ends on like a very like like weird like happy note with like Sean Connery coming in, and it's a very confusing like ending because you're like, oh, the parents just blew up like from the I think it was the microwave or something like no, that. No, the piece of evil in the microwave. That's that was yeah. Crazy. It was like, yeah. what is happening here? But but it ends on a like a, a strangely like upbeat note uh, even though we just watched the, this kid's parents like explode well it's, um, it's it's a wish fulfillment thing when you're a kid man you're like oh i could take care of myself my parents could just explode mm-hmm. and go to the, and then when they do you're like shit now what am i gonna yeah, do and now he's know? like oh i can go on adventures now it's perfect or, or, i'm or, free or I'm, or I'm actually standing in my driveway and the firemen are walking away and where do i go you know i mean yeah i mean that but that movie that movie has a vision has a completed vision whereas brazil is a bunch of pieces and then you have to watch other movies to try to figure it out and unlock it and that to me is annoying i'm like no just tell me the story oh, yeah. like you know come yeah, on yeah it's almost yeah and i was going to go with like baron munchausen where it's like an old man reminiscing on old days but it's it's still like more upbeat yeah and like using your imagination to get through cuz the whole uh, backdrop of Baron Munchausen is um, like the French are being invaded by the Turks, and and um, and the Turks are invading this like French village, and there's there's still like themes of bureaucracy. Jonathan Price actually plays like an awesome like bureaucrat, like this French bureaucrat, like who ends up uh, I think uh, I think Sting is in it as like a brief cameo, mm-hmm. as a brief aside, and he's like he's like bring in the heroic uh, captain. He's like, oh, you did this by yourself. Oh, that's that's great execute him we can't have him setting a too high like an unachievable standard you know it's like stuff like that and um and jonathan price is great in the movie but it ends i think the whole theme of like imagination and and using storytelling is to get is like using imagination and storytelling to get through these like really dark and depressing times and it ends on like a more positive note it's almost like the inverse of this of brazil Mm -hmm. where it's you're you're surrounded by just like bureaucracy and violence and there's like there's jokes where Baron Munchausen is getting off track and I think it's Sarah Polly? I, I think yeah. she's like the child and she says like, Hey, like we need to get back and Baron Munchausen says, No, 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 the the, the town's fine and then we directly cut to like the Turks like busting the like the main gate down and then like killing people. So you're like getting intercut with these things. 
but ultimately it's like using storytelling and your imagination to ex- like escape these like dour times but using them as hope to get to get through to the good times whereas this movie is just like very bleak and and depressing and and I will you do you did mention the point of you know I don't want to watch other movies to understand this movie it's only me and um like I still have like another t- side tangent with like Tarantino's most recent like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood I still feel like I'm missing something. I don't know what I'm missing, but my my brother Brian is like, "Oh, read the book, watch these films, do this, watch stuff with Sharon Tate." I'm like, "Dude, I don't want to do fucking homework yeah. for this movie." I like, love the movie, yeah. Sh- yeah, like I want like this movie is self-contained unless like it's an official trilogy and you want me to watch it with this, but it's not. It seems like it's an quote-unquote unofficial trilogy of the imagination, and that's something that I have said, that's I named it the imagination trilogy, but so I'm I'm with you as well with being like, I don't want to watch his other two movies to understand this. However, I think watching those other two movies helped me appreciate this movie which i don't know it sounds very contradictory but i don't know i just i can't really explain that um but i yes i uh, that was my long-winded way of trying to explain you know terry gilliam's vill- uh, vision and that in this case it's just that of a very like you know a man middle-aged man going through a midlife crisis and maybe is obsessed with those thoughts of just like you know, depression and like, there are no happy endings. Like just retreat. Like you can't, you yourself can't do anything. Retreat into your imagination, find happiness in yourself. And, uh, you know, you can't fight the system. And, may, and maybe that's what he's trying to, to say again. And I, I would agree that that's a pretty fair reading of this, but the getting there takes you a long time. And that, that to me is why I, I know why I never latched into what his whole, like move is as, as an artist and stuff like that. And it's probably why I will never watch this again. Like I, I wouldn't say never, but it would take, it would take a lot for me to want to watch Brazil again. Like somebody on film strip would really want to have to review this for me to sit through it and, and try to parse through it again. But it's been fun to do this time because the whole point of this exercise was to try to watch stuff I'd never seen before that other people think is brilliant. And when I look at it, I go, you know what? I go back to what I said a little while ago. If if there was a version of this that was just Michael Kamen's score and and all these visuals, I could probably watch it and just sort of trip and enjoy it, you know, because I don't do mm-hmm. hallucinogenic drugs, but I can understand why people who did enjoy this, Frank Zappa, <laughs> River Phoenix, you know, like I get it. Like, but yeah, you know, like there's, I'm a big Pink Floyd fan and that's not for everybody. You know, I get it. And some people say like, it's enhanced by the drugs. And I'm like, I don't know. It might get a little, little scary, you know, with some of the underwater <laughs> stuff, but I feel about like the wall, the same way I feel about this movie. Whereas I love the wall and I kind of feel like it all comes together and you can, you can follow it. Maybe not the Bob Geldof movie, but the, the, the <laughs> album from Pink Floyd versus this. And, and I, I just think it's better. And I, I giggle back to what I said in the beginning that John Hurt movie for about 1984, the George Orwell story, which is a pretty hor- horrific story, but really only has like one action piece to it. And it's the very end. Um, and it, that's a, that's a great visual representation of what that might look like. Now, Orwell was wrong about so many things about that future and that history and what was going to happen. And really what he was looking at was what he thought was going to happen in the years post world war two um, and things like that. And people have tried to draw way more off of it than was really there. But as it just as a thought exercise about dystopia, I feel like 1984 completely has something you can grasp onto and follow and be through. Whereas this is supposed to be like 1984 plus a joke, 
you know, plus a, a, a headless horseman or a headless knight or whatever, you know, some, something ridiculous, some, some absurdist humor. And I, you know, for me that, that just never quite all falls together. So, you know, that, that's my final words on Brazil. Yeah. Um, I'll go into my final thoughts and, uh, my rec, my recommendations and ratings. Um, and then I'll pass it off to you for your final ratings. Um, so with with the initial episode like a few years ago um i guess it was like 2018 2019 um the whole premise was what am i missing am i missing brazil because i hadn't seen it for a while and or i hadn't seen it at that point and and i watched it and honestly i i probably should have listened to my episode like I, i listened to the history but then i didn't even listen if i missed it uh or if i thought i was missing out um i i would say that i thought I was missing out if not seeing this film because I think the visual style is there's a lot there and I think there's a lot for many different people but but especially people who are and film goers and people that are like really heavily into the visual aspect um I don't think I think Gilliam's style is in like full display here um it's a little bit I don't want to say restrained because I feel like fear and loathing he just goes like balls to the wall with his visuals and that is like overbearing where here i feel like it's a little bit more appropriate and, and palatable and i think there's a lot of like really unique visuals and satire here so on the visuals alone i was like really missing out we were talking about with the idea of like the theme of imagination and and stuff and like this really on this film itself like this very depressing and uh like kind of just very, I don't know. It, it, it's it. I mean, depressing is the really only way. It's just uh, like you know, there's no hope. You know, just retreat into your imagination and just hope nothing bad happens to you. Um, like find what little solace you have and the enjoyment you have and just go there. Um, I think there's something to be said about something to be said about that, but it takes a while to get there. So that can be grating and frustrating. Uh, but that being said. I think there is something to be had in this movie. So, again, was I missing out on not seeing it? I think I was. Um, my my rating, so, like, every... We, we talk about our letterbox. Um, I gave Brazil a 3 out of 5 stars. Um, and out of 10, I'd probably give it a 6.5 out of 10, just because of everything we're talking about here, in that it takes a while to get to what it's trying to say and there's a lot of sketches and a lot of ideas like thrown into the pot and some mesh really well and some are like "Mm, we probably could have cut that along with a few other things um but ultimately i do enjoy the film um even if it's like a pretty like it's a it's a recommend it's like a weak moderate recommend but um i'm gonna i'm gonna find myself returning to this um especially as I continue to explore uh, more and more of uh, Gilliam's work, Um, because I haven't seen everything. Um, Maybe if I watch everything, I'm going to be like, nope, I never want to return to this. Or maybe I do. Um, You know, we'll see in, you know, a few more more years as I'm slowly getting through his his short films and his feature lengths. But um, ultimately, I feel like I enjoyed the movie. Um, It's like a weak, mild recommend. And like I said, a three out of five stars on Letterboxd and a 6.5 out of 10. Uh, you know, just in a regular uh, recommendation. So those are my closing thoughts and my recommendations. Jay, what about your uh, recommendations? I mean, I'm de- I'm definitely in the 
the two and a half star range. I think that's what I gave it on Letterboxd when I watched it. And I just, just, I've said it all, you know, it just doesn't all come together for me. And, and it, if I have to do too much homework to put it together, then that means the movie doesn't entirely work. And when I tell people to watch this, I think I would, if you're into the artistry and you, you've heard the buzz and you just, I think it's worth seeing at least once. Yeah. I wouldn't say like, this is one of those, like just completely do not even bother with kind of movies, but I, it's not one that I'll find myself again, going back to or wanting to revisit again, because it just, it asks too much for a return that is not there. And that's just the bottom line on this one. So I give it two and a half stars, but it visually again, it's a feast, but it just doesn't have a, a, a real story. Yeah. And that's fair. Yeah. I, I, I think those are all like very fair criticisms and very valid points. Um, but Jay, that concludes another episode of journey through the decades. We're get we're almost getting through to the end and, uh, I'm excited to where the rest of uh, the next few episodes are going to take us. Um, but before we close this episode out, uh, you want to, plug your shows anywhere we can find you absolutely um you can hear me on filmstrip podcast that's uh at filmstrip pod on all the social medias and then filmstrippodcast.com will take you to our distribution site but just search for filmstrip podcast wherever you find your podcast me ron Lindsay, brian been doing this thing for almost 13 years at this point as of this recording and so a lot of different episodes we're kind of uh, taking ourselves through a lot of different uh different types of films this year we're sort of doing one a month and trying to make a you know kind of a big splash out of some different stuff we'll get some fun stuff coming up and uh, looking forward to it but uh, as always great talking uh, movies with you mike thanks for having me on oh yeah of course and it's always a pleasure talking movies with you and i appreciate you coming on but everyone that concludes this episode of, episode of amateur all tours uh thanks for listening you can follow the show on twitter at all tours pod can email us with any questions comments or concerns at the amateur all tours podcast at gmail.com so yeah, next episode, uh, I'm really excited. We got the 1990s, and uh, we'll be, uh, like, I guess a little tease. We'll be uh, going to some uh, familiar territory, especially after this episode. Yes, indeed. <laughs> awesome. Looking forward to it. But until then, we'll see you next time, guys. Cool.